The Swiss Family Robinson, Chapter 27, Wild Ass, Difficulty in Breaking It, The Heath Fowl's Nest. We were scarcely up one morning and had got to work in putting the last hand to our winding staircase when we heard it a distant, two strange kind of voices that resembled the howling of wild beasts mixed with hissings and sounds of some creature at its last gasp, and I was not without uneasiness. Our dogs, too, pricked up their ears and seemed to wet their teeth for a sanguinary combat with a dangerous enemy. From their looks, we judged it prudent to put ourselves in a state of defense. We loaded our guns and pistols, placed them together within our castle in the tree, and prepared to repel vigorously any hostile attack from that quarter. The howlings having ceased an instant, I descended from our citadel, well armed, and put on our two faithful guardians their spite collars and side guards. I assembled our cattle about the tree to have them in sight, and I reascended to look around for the enemy's approach. Jack wished they might be lions. I should like, said he, to have a near view of the king of beasts, and should not in the least af afraid of him. At this instant the howlings were renewed and almost close to us. Fritz got as near the spot as he could, listened attentively and with eager looks, and threw down his gun and burst into a loud laughter, exclaiming, Father, it is our ass! The deserter has, comes back to us, chanting the hymn of return. Listen, do you not hear his melodious brayings and all the varieties of the gamut? I listened, and a fresh roar, and sounds unquestionable, raised loud peals of laughter amongst us, and then followed the usual train of jesters and mutual banter at the alarm we had one and all betrayed. Shortly after, we had the satisfaction of seeing among the trees our old friend Grizzle moving toward us leisurely and stopping now and then to browse but to our great joy he was accompanied by one of his own species of very superior beauty and when it was nearer i knew it to be a fine onagro or wild ass which i conceived a strong desire to possess though at the same time aware of the extreme difficulty there would be in taming and rendering him subject to the use of man some writers who have described it under the name of the Igate or long-eared horse given it by the Tartars affirm that the taming it has been ever found impracticable. But my mind furnished an idea on the subject which I was resolved to act on if I got possession of the handsome creature. Without delay, I descended the ladder with Fritz, desiring his brothers to keep still, and I consulted my private counselor on the means of surprising and taking the stranger captive. I got ready, as soon as possible, a long cord with a running knot, one end of which I tied fast to the root of a tree. The noose was kept open with a little stick slightly fixed in the opening, so as to fall of itself on the ass being thrown round the neck of the animal, whose efforts to escape would draw the knot closer. I also prepared a piece of bamboo about two feet long, which I split at the bottom and tied fast at the top to serve as nippers. Fritz attentively examined my contrivance without seeing the use of it. Prompted by the impatience of youth, he took the ball string 
and proposed aiming at the wild ass with it, which he said was the shortest way of proceeding. I declined to adopt this Patagonian method, fearing the attempt might fail and the beautiful creature avail itself of its natural velocity to evade us beyond recovery. I therefore told him my project of catching it in the noose, which I give him to gave him to manage as being nimbler and more expert than myself. The two asses drew nearer and nearer to us, for its holding in his hand the open noose moved softly on from behind the tree where we were concealed and advanced as far as the length of the rope allowed him. The Onagra started on perceiving a human figure. It sprang some paces backward, then stopped as if to examine the unknown form. But as Fritz now remained quite still, the animal resumed its composure and continued to browse. Soon after he approached the old ass, hoping that the confidence that would be shown by it would raise a similar feeling in the stranger. He held out a handful of oats mixed with salt. Our ass instantly ran up to take his favorite food, and greedily devoured it. This was quickly perceived by the other. It drew near, raised its head, breathed strongly, and came up so close that Fritz, seizing the opportunity, succeeded in throwing the rope round its neck, but the motion and stroke so frightened the beast that it instantly sprang off. It was soon checked by the cord, which, in compressing the neck, almost stopped its breathing. It could go no further, and after many exhausting efforts, it sank panting for breath upon the ground. I hastened to loosen the cord and prevent its being strangled. I then quickly threw our ass's halter over its head. I fixed the nose in my split cane, which I secured at the bottom with pack thread. Thus I succeeded in subduing the first alarm of this wild animal, as Farrier shoe a horse for the first time. I wholly removed the noose that seemed to bring the creature into a dangerous situation. I fastened the halter with two long ropes to two roots near us, on the right and left, and left, let the animal recover itself, noticing its actions and devising the best way to tame it in the completest manner. The rest of my family had by this time come down from the tree and beheld the fine creature with admiration. Its graceful shape and well-turned limbs which placed it so much above the ass and nearly raised it to the noble structure of the horse. In a few moments the Onagra got up again, struck furiously with its foot and seemed resolved to free itself from all bonds, but the pain of its nose which was grasped and violently squeezed in the bamboo, forced it to lie down again. Fritz and I now gently undid the cords and half led, half dragged it between two roots closely connected, to which we fastened it afresh so as to give the least scope of for motion, and thus rendered its escape impracticable, whilst it enabled us to approach securely and examine the valuable capture we had made. We also guarded against Master Grizzle, playing truant again, and tied him fast with a new halter, confining its forelegs with a rope. I then fastened it and the wild ass side by side, and put before both plenty of good provender to solace their impatience of captivity. We had now the additional occupation of training the Onagra for our service or our pleasure, as might turn out to be most practicable. My boys exulted in the idea of riding it, and we repeatedly congratulated each other on the good fortune which had thus resulted from the flight of our ass. Yet I did not conceal that we should have many difficulties to encounter in taming it, 
though it seemed very young, and not even to have reached its full growth, but I was inclined to think proper means had not been hitherto adopted, and that the hunters, almost as savage as the animals themselves, had not employed sufficient art and patience, being probably unconscious of the advantages of either. I therefore determined to resort to all possible measures. I let the nippers remain on its nose, which appeared to distress him greatly, though we could plainly perceive their good effect in subduing the creature. For without them no one could have ventured to approach him. I took them off, however, at times, when I gave it food to render eating easier, and I began, as with the buffalo, by placing a bundle of sailcloth on its back to inure it to carry. When accustomed to the load, I strove to render the beast by degrees still more docile by hunger and thirst, and I observed with pleasure that when it had fasted a little and I supplied it with food, its look and actions were less wild. I also compelled the animal to keep erect on its four legs by drawing the cords closer that fastened it to the roots in order to subdue gradually by fatigue its natural ferocity. The children came in turns to play with it and scratch its ears gently, which were remarkably tender, and it was on these I resolved to make my last trial if all other endeavors failed. For a long time we despaired of success, though Nagra made furious starts and leaps when any of us went near it, kicked with its hind feet, and even attempted to bite those who touched it. This obliged me to have recourse to a muzzle, which I managed with rushes and put on when it was not feeding. To avoid being struck by its hind feet, I partially confined them, by fastening them to the forefeet with cords, which, however, I left moderately loose, that we might not encroach too much upon the motion necessary for its hail. It was at length familiarized to this discipline, and was no longer in a rage when we approached, but grew less impatient daily, and bore to be handled and stroked. At last we ventured to free it by degrees from its restraints, and to ride it as we had done with the buffalo, still keeping the forefeet tied, but notwithstanding this precaution and every preceding means, it proved as fierce and unruly as ever for the moment. The monkey, who was first put on its back, held on pretty well by clinging to its mane, from which it was suspended as often as the Onagra furiously reared and plunged was therefore, for the present, impracticable for either of my sons to get upon it. The perverse beast baffled all our efforts, and the perilous task of breaking it was still to be preserved, and with terror and apprehension. In the stable it seemed tolerably quiet and gentle, but the moment it was in any degree unshackled, it became wholly ferocious and unmanageable. I was at length reduced to my last expedient. But not without much regret, as I resolved, if it did not answer, to restore the animal to full liberty. I tried to mount the Nagra, and just as in the act of rearing up valiantly to prevent me, I seized with my teeth one of the long ears of the enraged creature, and bit it till it bled. Instantly it stood almost erect on its hind feet, motionless and as stiff as a stake, and soon lowered itself by degrees, while I still held its ear between my teeth, for it seized the moment and sprang on its back. Jack, with the help of his mother, did the same, holding by his brother, who on his part clung to the girth. When both assured me they were firmly seated, I let go the earth. Onagra made a few springs less violent than the former, and checked by the cords on its feet, it gradually submitted, began to trot up and down more quietly, and ultimately grew so tractable that riding became one of our chief pleasures. My lads were soon expert horsemen, and their horse though rather long-eared, was very handsome and well broken in. 
thus patience on our parts, conquered a serious difficulty and gained for us a proud advantage. I now explained to my companions that I learned this extraordinary mode of taming from a horsebreaker I met with by chance. In this task, we engaged diligently and went daily here and there with our cart to collect everything useful, and that might give us all employment when the weather prevented our going far. One evening, on our return from digging up potatoes, as our cart, loaded with bags, drawn by the buffalo, ass, and cow, was gently rolling along, seeing still a vacant place in the vehicle, I advised my wife to go home with the two youngest boys, whilst I went round by the wood of oaks with Ernest and Fritz to gather as many sweet acorns as we could find room for. We had still some empty sacks. Ernest was accompanied by his monkey, who seldom left him, and Fritz, horseman-like, was on his dear Onagra, which he had appropriated to himself, inasmuch as he had helped to take and tame it, and indeed because he knew how to manage it better than his brothers. Ernest was too lazy and preferred walking at ease with the monkey on his shoulder, and the more so because it spared him the trouble of gathering fruit. When we reached the oaks, Lightfoot was tied to a bush, and we set actively to work to gather the acorns that had dropped from the trees. While all was busily employed, the monkey quitted its master's shoulder and skipped unperceived into the joining bush. It had been there some time when we heard on that side the loud cries of birds and flapping of wings, and this assured us a sharp conflict was going on between Master Nips and the inhabitants of the bushes. I dispatched Ernest to reconnoitre. He went stoutly towards the place, and in an instant we heard him exclaim, Come quickly, father! I find Heathfowl's nest full of eggs. Mr. Nips, as usual, wished to make a meal of them. The hen and he are fighting for it. Come quick, Fritz, and take her. I'm holding greedy chops as well as I can. Fritz ran up directly, and in a few moments brought out alive the male and female Heathfowl, both very beautiful. The cock finely colored, similar to one he had killed on a former occasion. I was rejoiced at this discovery and helped my son to prevent their escape by tying their wings and feet and holding them, while he returned to the bush for the eggs, and now Ernest came forward driving the monkey before him and carrying his hat with the utmost care. He had stuck his girdle full of narrow, sharp-pointed leaves and shaped like a knife blade, which reminded me of the production named Swordgrass, but I did not pay much attention as I was too busy engaged in our egg hunt and considered his decoration as childishness. On coming up to me, he uncovered his hat and gave it me in a transport of joy, crying out, Here, father, are some heathfowl's eggs. I found them in a nest so well concealed under these long leaves that I should not have observed them had not the hen, in defending herself against the monkey, scattered them about. I am going to take them home. They will please my mother. And these leaves will amuse Francis, for they are like swords, and he will like them for a plaything. I applauded Ernest's kind thought, and I encouraged him and Fritz to be thus ever considerate for the absent. The kindness conferred on the, those who are separated from us have in themselves more merit and are more valued than those which are personally received. It was now time to think of moving homeward. My two sons filled the bags with acorns and put them on Lightfoot. Fritz mounted, Ernest carried the eggs, I took charge of the hen, and we proceeded to Falcon Stream, followed by our train wagon. Our good cattle were in such complete subjection that it was only necessary to speak to them. 
I remarked Ernest often applying his ear to the hat which held the eggs, as if he thought the little ones were near coming forth. I listened also and observed some shells already broken and the young protruding. We were overjoyed at our good luck, and Fritz could not refrain from trotting on briskly to bear the tidings to his mother. When arrived, our first care was to examine the eggs. The female bird was too frightened and wild to sit upon them. Fortunately, we had a hen that was hatching. Her eggs were immediately removed, and the new ones put in their place. The female heath-fowl was put into the parrot's cage, and hung up in the room to accustom it to our society. In less than three days, all the chickens were hatched. They kept close to their foster mother, and ate greedily a mixture of sweet acorns, bruised in milk, such as we gave our tame poultry. As they grew up, I plucked out the large feathers of their wings, lest they should naturally take flight. But they and their real parent gradually became so domesticated that they daily accompanied our feathered stock in search of food, and regularly came back at night to the roost I had prepared for them, and in which this little new colony of feather beings seemed to delight. He had lived long in America and carried on the skin trade with the people to whom he took in exchange various European goods. He employed in these journeys half-tamed horses of the southern provinces of that country, which are caught in snares or with nooses. They are at first unruly and resist burdens, but as soon as the hunter bites one of their ears, they become mild and submissive, and alas, so docile that anything may be done with them. The journey is continued through forests and over heaths to the dwellings of the inhabitants. Skins are given in barter for the goods brought them, and which the horses are, are released. They set out again on their return, and are directed by the compass and stars to the European settlements, where they profitably dispose of their skins and horses. In a few weeks the Onagra was so effectually tamed that we all could mount it without fear. I still, however, kept his two forelegs confined, together with the cord, to moderate the extreme swiftness of its running. In the room of a bit, I contrived a curb, and with this and a good bit applied as one to the ear, it went to right or left at the will of the writer. Now and then I mounted it myself, and not without an emotion of pride at my success in subduing an animal that had been considered by travelers and naturalists as absolutely beyond the power of man to tame. But how superior was my gratification on seeing Fritz spring at any time on the creature's back, drive along on avenue like lightning, and do what he pleased with it, in depicting to my fond imagination that even on a desert unknown island, I could qualify my dear children to re-enter society and become in such respects its ornament. In beholding their physical strength and native graces unfold themselves, and these keeping pace with the improvement of their intelligence and just their judgment, and in anticipating that buried as they were in a distant retreat, far from the tumult of the world, and all that excites the passions, their sentiments would be formed in exact conformity to the paternal feelings of my heart. I had not lost the hope that we should one day return to Europe in some vessel chance might throw on our coast or even with the aid of our panace, but I felt at the same time, and my wife still more, that we should not leave the island without a lively regret, and I determined to pursue my arrangements as if we were to close existence on a spot where all around us prospered. During the training of our horse, which we named Lightfoot, a triple brood 
of our hens had given us a crowd of little feathered beings. Forty of these, at least, were chirping and hopping about us to the great satisfaction of my wife, whose zealous care of them sometimes made me smile. Some of these were kept near us, while others were sent in small colonies to feed and breed in the desert, where we could find them as they were wanted for our use. This increase of our poultry reminded us of an undertaking we had long thought of, and was not imprudence to be deferred any. This was the building between the roots of our great tree, covered sheds for all our bipeds and quadrupeds. The rainy season, which is the winter of these countries, was drawing near, and to avoid losing most of our stock, it was requested to shelter it. We began by forming a kind of roof above the arched roots of our tree, and employed bamboo canes for the purpose. The longest and strongest supported the roofing in the place of columns. The smaller, more closely united, and composed the roof itself. I filled up the interstices with moss and clay, and I spread over the whole a thick coat of tar. By these means I formed a compact and solid covering. Capable of bearing pressure, I then made a railing round it, which gave the appearance of a pretty balcony upon which, between the roots, were various stalls sheltered from rain and sun that could be easily shut and separated from each other by means of planks nailed upon the roots. Part of them were calculated to serve as a stable and yard, part as an eating room, a storage room, and as a hay loft to keep our hay and provisions dry in. This work was soon completed, but afterwards it was necessary to fill these places with stores of every kind for our supply throughout the wet season.